If you have a Bible, get to uh, Ephesians 5. That's where we'll be today. I hope you've got a Bible in front of you. If you don't, if you need a good Bible, uh, we've got some at Guest Connections. We also have some uh, good study Bibles that one cross pointer gave toward. I think we have eight on hand right now. We had six. We've given away a few of those. She gave more. We bought more. So I want to get those in your hands if you need a good study Bible. I gave away a couple last Wednesday at our How to Grow class, which was uh, really fun to give away. We finish up today a six-week vision series that we've been calling Resets, and we've been talking about how over the past five to six months, we've all faced distractions and uh, uh, disruptions to the rhythms that we, have, uh, we, we, we are used to, and so how that has often disrupted our own spiritual growth. So we've been talking about what do we need to fix or adjust or reset, if you will, in order to pursue the Lord and grow spiritually and really flourish in the faith. And as a church, we believe there are four areas the Lord is calling us to reset as a church. So praying in total dependence, equipping the saints, growing into maturity, and walking in love together, which is the one we're looking at today. Pastor Kent looked at it last week, and then I'll look at it again today. There's a very basic nature to walking, isn't there? You learn as a toddler, left, right, left, right, and then you stick with that pattern for the rest of your life. Unless you're playing hopscotch or skipping, that's the pattern that you follow. Author and pastor Rankin Wilborn wrote this as it relates to this metaphor of the Christian life being like a walk. He said, this turns out to be one of the most challenging aspects of the Christian life, the simple ongoing repetition of it, left, right, left, right, again and again, over and over, all the way, every day. And then he writes, we might prefer to fly. Flying seems easier, doesn't it? There are some days that I would prefer to go 600 miles an hour in my spiritual life rather than seeing it like a walk because I feel like I'd really make some headway then. And yet anyone who has followed Jesus for any length of time knows that a walk, that metaphor, is much more fitting. And yet in that daily moment-by-moment, left-right kind of rhythm, we are being formed into Christ. We are being taught by His Word, strengthened by His Spirit In this passage of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is going to describe what walking looks like. And I believe if we're open to the Spirit today, we will be encouraged in this vision of walking in love together. Today, we're looking at verses 6 through 21. My wife really, she talked to me earlier this week, said, could I... Could you please spend about 20 minutes on verse 22? I just really want to spend a lot of time there. And I said, no, no, we we, we can't get there this week, honey. And you'll have to read your Bible to understand that joke. And when you do, hopefully you'll laugh. As we look at this passage, we'll we'll see three themes come out of it. Verses 6 through 4, Paul gives us a warning as we walk. The latter part of verse 14, he, he calls us to wake up. Don't be sleepwalking through life. And then in the final verses... He calls us to pay careful attention to how we walk and gives us some real practical encouragement about how we can walk in a way that glorifies the Lord and strengthens the family of God. So verses 6 through 14, he gives us a warning. Remember, he's writing to the saints at Ephesus, the people of God, the people who place their faith and trust in the Lord. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty arguments. For God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Therefore, do not become their partners. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 
For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made visible, for what makes everything visible is light. Light and darkness is the theme here. You too were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Did you, did you catch that he doesn't say you were in darkness and now you are in light? He says, you and I were once darkness, and now you and I are light. Believers in Christ, we've been fundamentally changed from the inside out. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 speaks of this fundamental change. Verses 1 through 3, it's all about darkness. We're born dark, children under wrath living for our flesh, born with hearts that need healing, a very clear once in all our stories. Once we were this way, apart from the grace of God, but then verse 4 just bursts in like love does. The once is no longer, the now has come, made possible completely by the grace of God. So then verse 4 begins with, But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love that He had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You were saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus for that, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you were saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. We have been fundamentally changed from the inside out. We were once dead, now we are alive. We were once darkness, but now we are light by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And now, as a result, we are His workmanship, created in Jesus for what? Good works. We now walk as children of light, not to earn light, not to keep ourselves in the light, but because He is light. And the God of all mercy has been so good and gracious to change us and save us. We walk because He's changed us. And here in chapter 5, Paul is warning us not to turn back to old ways. He's saying, do not become their partners, verse 7. And then verse 11, don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness. Why? Because we're called to a life of good works, works that reveal the fruit of light, things like goodness, righteousness, truth, a life that pleases the Lord. When you think of the picture of partners, there is an interlocking, a connecting, a bond being formed. He's not saying that We are to avoid unbelievers and go down to the bomb shelter and wait for him to return. Praise God that other believers did not avoid us, that they engaged with us as missionaries when we were in darkness, that they pursued us, light entered in, and the Lord used God's people to pursue our own hearts. May we do the same as we continue to pass on our faith. He is saying, though, that you've been profoundly changed from the inside. You are now light. So don't interlock interlock with, don't participate in actions of darkness because that would be contrary to who you are in Christ now. Think of what grows in the darkness. Mold, infection, 
fruitless works. Goodness, righteousness, truth, they don't grow in the dark, only in the light. Nothing good or godly grows in darkness. Only death and destruction grow there. And Paul's warning believers, don't turn back to these fruitless works of darkness. Brother and sister in the Lord, what's your life marked by? What's your way of life characterized by? Is it a growing fruitfulness, goodness, righteousness, truth, or growing fruitlessness? These things of our old nature, our old creation that was nailed to the cross, buried in a tomb. What is our life characterized by? Paul is not saying that we won't struggle against indwelling sin this side of heaven. He is saying that we won't be characterized by, our walks won't be marked by habitual, ongoing, I don't care about that sin, I've justified it, I'm not going to change that kind of attitude. It'd be contrary to our new identity in Jesus. It'd be contrary to the new life that He has given us by grace alone. He is saying we will not partner up with, join in with the ways of the world which we are not to conform to according to Romans 12. Paul gives believers a a warning toward walking in the ways of darkness and the ways that led to the death of Christ on that cross, sin that's been paid in full. He's calling us to walk as children of light. And then verse 14, the second half, it says, Therefore, it is said, Get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Wake up, O sleepwalker. The Christian life is not one that we sleep or slumber through. And why is that? Because Jesus is not sleeping in the tomb. Because he has risen from the day, on the third day. Our king, our leader, our savior beat death. He is no longer sleeping or slumbering. He is seated, but he is still reigning and ruling and has not left the throne. Charles Spurgeon said, the sleepiness in the Christian is exceedingly dangerous. The man who is asleep does not care what becomes of his neighbors. How can he while he is asleep? And oh, some of you Christians do not care whether souls are saved or damned. It is enough for you if you are comfortable. If you can attend a respectable place of worship and go with others to heaven, you are indifferent about everything else. Mm. How about that one? That's good. That's good for my heart. I hope it's good for yours. Have you been indifferent before? Sure, we all have. We've all been indifferent before to things that really matter. Loved ones, we are resurrection people. We are not slumbering, sleepy, indifferent people to the mission that we've been called to. A mission to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus. We were once dead people, but now we are alive people. He made us alive together in Christ. Loved ones, the Lord is calling us to wake up. To wake up. Wake up to the mission. Wake up to eternal matters. Wake up to the brevity of life. Some of you have fallen asleep in the last six months. You've allowed distractions and disruptions to lead to sleepiness and slumber. The Lord's calling us to reset, to wake up, to be prayerful, watchful, for how the Lord will work. 
to fix our eyes on eternal matters, not to be drawn into patterns that lead to apathy or indifference or self-centered thinking, but rather, sleeper, get up. Get up. Stop snoozing. Get up. The fullness of Christ in, the fullness of life in Christ awaits you and I. The sun's up. Let's go live the abundant life that he's called us to live. A warning in how we walk. A call to wake up and stop sleeping through life. And then finally to pay careful attention to how we walk. Verse 15. Pay careful attention then to how you walk. Not as unwise people, but as wise. Making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living. But be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. He's got three contrasts there to help us give practical counsel on, on what it looks like to walk this life of faith. Not as unwise, but as wise. Not as foolish, but understand the Lord's will. And then not drunk on wine, but rather be filled by the Spirit. The first one, verse 15, again, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. Making the most of the time, it says. So, so not make, most of time, make, make the most of time, but rather the time. You and I have been given breath in our lungs, beats in our hearts, in this section called life. Between here and however many days the Lord has numbered our life. Take advantage of the time. Don't waste the time of the life that you've been given. Don't waste the life. Your translation may say, redeem the time. The idea of a shrewd business person just buying up all the opportunities. Think Monopoly. Just buying up every single opportunity because they don't want to waste anything. Don't waste your walks, friends. We've all seen the analogy of how to set your priorities and you put the big rocks in and then the little rocks come in afterwards and like money, if we don't plan on how we give, save, and spend it, it's just going to go wherever the wind takes it. Such is the case with time. If we aren't intentional about how we can make most of, of the time, then we will invariably waste it on all these little pebbles that culture says, oh, this is really, this really matters. And in the end, it's just a little pebble. What big rock have you neglected to prioritize? What small pebble have you elevated to a boulder because you think it's worth it? Today's the day to walk not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of the time. Second contrast, verse 17. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. According to Proverbs, the fool lives for themselves, lives simply for the moment, for earthly things, lives in a wasteful, wild, destructive manner. As children of light, our walk is to be in line with the Lord's will. Colossians 3, 1 and 2 gives us a good picture of how to do that. So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. In that daily left-right rhythm, we set our minds on things above because our primary citizenship is not here. 
It is not temporary. It is not earthly. It is heavenly. And so we live with that in mind. Finally, verse 18, and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. In this daily walk, we're going to be tempted to turn to earthly things for our energy, our rest, our satisfaction. All of these created things, whether they be alcohol or any other substance that has been created, when we turn to that rather than the Spirit, it's going to lead to one place and one place alone, enslavement. Loved ones, we've been designed by the Lord to live free. Chains have been broken. Why would we return to chains when they have been shattered and we've been set free? We've been called to live dependently upon and be filled by the Spirit. Don't be intoxicated with alcohol, but be intoxicated with God. The, the Lord has given us His Spirit, which is far superior to anything this world has to offer. And many of us get that because we've tried to go down these avenues trying to fill ourselves with other things. And then we get to the end of that road and realize it is a, an enslavement cul-de-sac. We can't make use of the time if we are wasting it away on substances and practices that entangle and numb us. They will lead to fruitless works of darkness. Some of you in the past six months have turned to a variety of things to try to deal with the discomfort and disruption of life. Today is the day to repent. Today is the day to walk toward freedom, to turn around, to walk as who you are, a child of light. And you're not alone in this battle. You've got brothers and sisters, a family of God who wants to support you, pray for you, encourage you, equip you, give you money, give you time so that you might be able to experience freedom. So ask for help. What does it mean to be filled by the Spirit? How can we be filled with the Spirit? Well, we are given the Spirit of God at conversion, and at the same time, there's an ongoing nature to our walk with the Lord. Keep in step with the Spirit, Galatians 5. Or John 15, as a branch, remain connected to the vine. Abide in the Lord. Or here in Ephesians 5. But here he gives us four ways that describe a life that is filled by the Spirit in an ongoing way. Not to earn the Spirit, but just to walk our Christian life being filled with, empowered by, fueled by the Spirit. Verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This is one of over 50 different one another commands in the New Testament. You and I won't be filled with the Spirit of God. We won't experience life in the Spirit in isolation. It's rather in the community of God that is brought together and empowered by the Spirit of God that we speak to one another and live out the one another's of the New Testament. The latter part of verse 19, singing and making music. Singing with the family of God is just as central to our gathering as the sermon is, as the scriptures are. On May 31st, after having gone three months without hearing the people of God sing, it was one of the sweetest sounds, I pray I won't forget, but one of the sweetest sounds to be able to hear the unified family of God singing to their God. It was beautiful. Singing is paramount to our gathering. Verse 20, giving thanks for everything. How's your thankfulness gauge right now? 
Listen, if all we had was the salvation of our souls, if all we'd had and experienced was Ephesians 2, being rescued from death, being brought back to life, CPR taking place, raised to new life, if all we had was that, that would be enough. And yet the Lord has lavishly shown us His grace over and over in our lives. We draw upon the Spirit of God when we pursue thankfulness, when we pursue a life of thanksgiving. Last one, verse 21. Submitting to one another. So we experience the life in the Spirit when we speak to one another in psalms and spiritual songs, when we live out to one another's, when we give thanks, when we sing and make music, as well as when we submit to one another. This is a military term. He's saying that we collectively are under rank. We take on that attitude, clothe ourselves in humility. The idea here is that in our walk with Christ and alongside the family of God is no longer about the individual. If you join the military, you get this. It isn't about you. I would guess within the first week of basic training, I bet they made that clear. It's rather all about the group, the unit, the family, the team. One commentary said, Let no man be so tenacious of his own will or his opinion in matters indifferent as to disturb the peace of the church. In all such matters, give way to each other and let love rule. Submitting to one another isn't a formula. It's like two people hitting the hitting a door, a single door at the same time. Oh, no, oh, no, you go. Oh, no, no, I insist. No, age before beauty. And like, somebody's got to walk through the door at some point. Someone's got to go first. Someone's got to submit to another person. So in order to walk that dance out, we're going to need to be in, keeping in step with the Spirit. I think Romans 12.10 helps us here. It says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. No, no, no. I'm going to beat you in showing honor. No, no, no. I'm going to put you first. Outdo one another in submitting to the other, in showing honor, in showing love, brotherly affection. And our motivation to do so is our shared fear of, reverence, worship of the Lord Jesus who went first, who laid down his life for his friends, took it back up on the third day so that we might adopt that attitude, as Philippians 2 would talk about. There's a collective one-anothering nature in this passage. He's writing not just to individual believers in a church, but the corporate church, the family of God, and calling them to walk as children of light, calling them to walk in love together because the God who has saved them and made them family is love. In May, I shared this story on one of my uh, weekly encouragement videos, so if you watch that, bear with me as I share it again, because I think it's fitting for this text. Four years ago, while on a summer vacation myself, my brother-in-law Matt, our boys, and our wives, uncle, uncle's son, climbed the Manitou Incline. The Manitou Incline is located in Manitou Springs, outside of Colorado Springs. Uncle's son lives in that area, and so he's an expert, and we are all rookies as we approached this incline. The Manitou Incline is just under a mile long, 
And yet over that mile, it gains nearly 2,000 feet in elevation. Here's a picture of the trail about two-thirds of the way up. And all the way down there toward that parking lot is the beginning of it. It was the hardest physical activity I've ever done. We didn't train for it. Uh, we didn't, uh, all we did was talk about it. Talk about it and say, yeah, that'd be kind of fun. We should do that and uh, our, we should do that with our boys and son would be up for it and that'd be a fun challenge and our boys are young and ready to roll. Our uncle who has 20 years on us is built like Tarzan and so uh, it's really no big deal to him because he's done it before. He does it multiple times. Matt and I are in. Our personal pride is strong. We're not backing down from this good challenge. And so we start climbing. It starts off really easy, and then it gets increasingly harder. At times, you're climbing it less like steps and more like a ladder. The steepest parts are at, are at a 68% incline. And as you start, you look up and you see what you think is the end. What you think is the end. And you're thinking, that's not, that's not too bad. And Uncle Son, thankfully, warned us about this because what you see up there is a false summit. What you see up there is actually only two-thirds of the way up. Because if you get up there and you realize, I still got 33% left to go, mm, you might give up. So he warned us, beware the false summit. So set your sights further than the false summit. Otherwise, you won't make it. Left, right, left, right. Keep climbing, keep walking, pause to catch your breath, but don't pause too long because the sun is setting. We got to get back down this thing, wipe the sweat, and keep climbing. At some point along those 2,000 feet of elevation increase, my thought was, I'm over it. I'm over it. I believe Matt was probably there as well, but you'd have to ask him for sure. But we weren't going to stop climbing. Our sons are with us. Our wives are at the bottom of the hill waiting to hear about it. There ain't no way we're climbing back down that thing saying we didn't finish. Okay? No way. Along the incline, I believe there were three responses that we could have had to that feeling of I'm over it. We didn't have these, but these would be very, very natural to have. The first one is an angry response. Well, we're on the incline now. What are we going to do? We might as well just keep climbing. This is stupid. This is stupid. Just stomping, huffing, and puffing all the way up. Okay? A despairing response. Woe is me. This is terrible. My hamstrings hurt. My feet hurt. We'll never make it. There ain't no way we're doing that one either. Or finally, a bitter response. Whose idea was this? <laughs> Who is it? I want to point a finger. I want to blame somebody. Why is my son not climbing with his middle-aged father? Why is he trying to set records? Walk with your father. Who put this incline here? You know, they didn't build this right. They didn't build this incline right. Somebody should have built this differently. Anger, despair, and bitterness are ungodly sources of energy to draw from. They're short bursts of energy, and they wither like a vapor. And worse yet, there's relational carnage at the end of it. We didn't turn to those by the grace of God, and we eventually made it to the top. Here's a picture of that, that glorious, see what I'm talking about, Tarzan? 
big smiles of satisfaction. And I do it all again in a heartbeat, maybe with a couple months head, head uh, notice. But I do it all again. And my wife and I, I talk about my wife, like, let's do this. Let's go do this sometime in our marriage. Since March, we've been on an incline of sorts. And we're all well past a variety of summits that we assumed this would be the end. This is no longer going to affect the rhythms of life. We're all well past a multitude of summits that we have placed, falsely placed. And I believe collectively, I've heard this from multiple cross-pointers. There's some level of, I'm over it. We're over it. No matter where your convictions are regarding protocols or reopening, in some sense, we are all experiencing this sense of, I'm over it. I'd like to be off this incline now. I didn't train for this. I didn't see it coming. I'd like to be done. And I believe there are three ungodly responses that we can turn to that I've seen cross-pointers turn to over the past six months. Anger, despair, and bitterness. Or some combination of all three. Along that Manitou incline, none of us went there. Why? Because all those responses would have been unhelpful at best and at worst hindered our joy when we got to the top. Nobody wants to put their arm around somebody who's who huffed and puffed for 2,000 feet. Nobody wants to put their arm around somebody who says, Jeepers, you just, you're so bitter. It would have hindered our joy when we made the summit. Instead, there was encouraging loving, spurring on chatter all the way up. Let's go. Come on. You're not old. Pain's just in your head. You go, we go. No man left behind. Any other movie line or cliche we could come up with, except for, I felt the need, the need for speed, because we were not climbing very fast. Church, on this left-right climb, long after 2020, for years down the road, we are called to Ephesians 2, walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. We are called to outdo one another in showing honor. We need more of this chatter on this climb, more chatter among the family of God, spurring one another on. We cannot settle for friendly fire that is more reflective of anger, despair, bitterness, old ways of life. Maybe for some of you, relationships among the family have actually been strained along this incline. Today's the day to seek restoration, pursue forgiveness, pursue humility, to focus on the plank in your own eye and not the speck in theirs. Let's not settle for fleshly and false sources of energy that won't lead to satisfying joy at the summit. Let's rather keep in step with the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, be dependent on the Spirit, living out the one another's as we climb. The worship team could come back up. On week one, as we looked at Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, we finished the service on our knees. As we conclude the series, I'd like to do that as well. So if you are physically able, whether at home, in the shed, with us here in person, if you're physically able, I'd encourage you to Kneel in prayer. 
Let's let this year's vision guide us in prayer for a couple minutes here before we sing. Praying in total dependence, equipping the saints, growing into maturity, walking in love together. Let's pray for a couple minutes as the Spirit leads, and then I'll close us. For this reason, we kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.